Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to a very special Mike Wise Show. Since our debut on January 14th, 2019, We've done 99 shows. As I like to say, I got 99 shows, but I ain't got paid for one. And this week, we celebrate our centennial with episode number 100. We have two of my oldest buds in the hoop journalism business, and we're taking no prisoners. This is also our last show of 2020 and our first show of 2021. But ladies first. So as usual, darling, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Frank Isola has worked for everyone. Sirius XM currently on the uh, uh, what, what's the show called, Frank? Starting lineup with Brian Scalabrini. Oh, Scal is back, huh? He's back. All right, uh, ESPN, PTI, uh, Around the Horn, all the gigs that I yearn for, and Frank has taken over now. Yes, <laughs> Network, um, uh, The Athletic, he did for a while, um, SNY, which I think he's going to work for now, and most. Um, notably 22 years at the New York Daily News. He's had an online beef with Lil Wayne and once drove Stefan Marbury home to Coney Island and went through every red light along the way. Harvey Ayrton is a Hall of Famer. Literally, he won the Kurt Gowdy Media Award from the Hoop Hall in 2017, covered the league for the New York Times for 25 years, and he's the author of a new book, Our Last Season, A Writer, A Fan, A Friendship. We'll talk about that later. You should get a copy. The most interesting thing about him is that his marriage hinged on John Paxson's jumper in the 1993 playoffs. <laughs> Welcome, guys. Uh, this is my hundredth show, so I, I just want—I I wanted two people that I know and trust and like. And well, anyway, uh, I, I really—I'm really glad you could both make it. Will there be cake? There will not be cake, but <laughs> but there will be like COVID vaccines after it's over. <laughs> and uh, let me correct you on a couple of things. Number one. It's the Yes Network that does the net games. Only on Yes, ah, as the okay, promo good, goes. Good. And when Harvey was in the Hall of Fame, we actually interviewed him up there. It was pretty cool. So Harvey's in the Montclair Hall of Fame. He's in the Naismith Hall of Fame. He's already got me beaten 2-0 on Hall of Fame. So, But he is the mayor. <laughs> he is the mayor of the same town that we live in. But I'm not in the Brian Scalabrini Hall of Fame. <laughs> I knew that, you know, I knew even when there was that brief separation that that was a marriage that would not end so easily. There, yeah, there was a, Rex, he, you know, Rex he, Chapman, he's big on Twitter now. Um, he's a, he had a thing the other day where it said, you know, name the most athletic player. Give you give give yourself the, the most athletic player for your first name and the most unathletic for your second name. And somebody had Shaquille Scalabrini. It was hilarious. <laughs> well, um, honestly, though, he, he's at, you know, he's six foot nine. Right. Which people don't realize it until they see him. He's still in great shape. And he's actually had people come up to him. Ah, you're not any good. I'm as good as you are. And he'll challenge if they want to play him in a one on one for money. All these guys think they could beat him. And he wipes the floor. Oh, I bet. So it's, 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 it's absurd. So you're 100 percent right. People look at him and they say, well, you know, listen, he wasn't a great NBA player. But it's pretty hard to make the NBA. Here's the other crazy thing. When he was in New Jersey, he had Jason Kidd as his teammate. They went to two finals. In Boston, he was on those great Boston teams. Yep. Then he went to Chicago that year that Derrick Rose won the MVP. And I think they won 62 or 63 games. He has one of the greatest winning percentages oh. in NBA history as a role player. Not, not bad. He's one of these Shane Battier guys. Like every team he's on is better. And uh, because he's such a jokester and – 
uh, he's, he's so uh, provocative sometimes. Like people look at him as like, ah, oh, he's he's the, he was one of these clown prince players, like uh, Tom Tolbert. No, he was he still lights he still lit up the big three when he was out I there. I know. Uh, so basically, right. for for as far as this show goes, Harvey's kind of Jason Kidd. I'll be Brian Scalabrini, and Mike, <laughs> you could be Todd McCullough. How about that? Hey, don't diss Todd McCullough. He's been a guest <laughs> twice on the show, baby, <laughs> and he's got a pinball museum on his little <laughs> island outside Seattle. All right. Um, well, let me just say, let me just say, if I'm Jason Kidd, then I'm the Jason Kidd who played for the Knicks the year they went 54, on my last legs, but still able to contribute something. That's good. That's good. I would give you. <laughs> right. You've had more staying power than him, though. Um, how foobar has the world been with COVID-19? I know, Frank, you're you're driving to work for the Yes Network as we speak with a mask on in a car. Someone's driving you. I have no idea who that is. All I know is, uh, is this thing gonna, when, when is this pandemic gonna end? And, and when, when do we even see crowds <laughs> back in NBA arenas? You know, it's, it's interesting too, now that the NBA season has started and you kind of got used to it in Orlando, plus they did a really good job with the venue being a little smaller. Now that I'm watching these games, it's tough without, you know, you, you really do miss the crowd. The NFL, uh, soccer over in Europe and even in the MLS, you kind of get used to it because the field is so big, so you don't see the crowd. I, I think it's been really tough. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you're right, Frank Harv. Your thoughts? I'm here. I can hear. You. Oh, you're good. Okay, good. Well, you know, I, I just did a uh, one of those year-end, you know, uh, essay type things for the Times, um, and uh, the point I made was that uh, in this year of COVID that sports, while it tried to come back and we know why they came back because the bottom line, the TV deals and everything else, whether it was professional or, or big time college football and basketball. But, you know, people was like, well, we need sports. We need the, the escapism. But that's, you know, the sort of the, uh, the promotional appeal of sports, the, the, the old escape from harsh reality it couldn't be that. It can't be that. Because if you're a baseball fan and you're watching Major League Baseball game and you're looking from the center field camera, you know, at the catcher, you're staring at a bunch of cardboard cutout faces. And, you know, if, you, if you're a tennis fan watching the U.S. Open, you're looking at like six people, you know, sitting in the, the player's box or around the lower stand. And the rest of the crowd are the some of the other players picking at their sushi boxes in the, in the luxury suite, and that was it. So it's kind of, you know, you have to kind of divorce yourself from the surroundings of the event to, you know, to feel like you're actually watching a professional sports event. And uh, that's hard to do. I mean, Frank made a good point about soccer and football, just the, the sheer size of the field, you know, they can block out the empty stands with football, I guess, if they're kicking a field goal, they're kicking toward the end zone, you see it. But, um, and then, but also equally startling were a lot of these college football games that were being played like in the South and Southwest, where you turned on the game and you saw, you saw 25, 30,000 people in the stands and that scared the shit out of you. You know I mean? Like, holy cow, I mean, they're actually there. You know, and then the, the, the Notre Dame Clemson game where all the Notre Dame fans ran uh. on the field. I mean, so either uh, way, watching sports yeah. was not could not be the escapism that you know we've known it to be, and uh, yeah. won't well, the be college football. The college back. Football, yeah, the college football playoff with Alabama Notre Dame. I mean, Brian Kelly and Nick Saban are like walking super spreader events themselves. I mean, it's gonna be <laughs> it, it's gonna be crazy. Uh, I look, the year twenty twenty was momentous for so many reasons. Most of it bad, pandemic, politics. Um, activism but like the, the nba like to me it, it 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 grew in in tragic ways like in pop culture circles i mean the year started with david stern and kobe bryant both dying in january uh anything you remember from either of those frank because i know you really you got to know kobe a little bit and and i know you liked him and respected him a lot we both knew David, we all three of us knew David Stern, even though we knew that he was, he was up in years, still a stroke and, and dying so quickly, brain aneurysm caught us off guard. 
I, anything you remember, Frank, from from the moment you found out Kobe died and like, I don't know what, what that did to you. No, 11 months before that, I got asked to host an event at, at the NBA store. Kobe was there. Like I've, I said, they must have asked maybe 30 other people. And when they all said no, they asked those 30 people again. And then somehow I got to do it. It was very cool to be with them. You know, I always admired him as a player. You know, it's interesting. His first ever points were scored at Madison Square Garden. And I still remember to this day, Dell Harris turning toward, uh, you know, the reporters at the, you know, sitting right there when we used to sit on the floor and him saying I was there when his daddy scored his first point. So, you know, we saw Kobe Bryant score his mm. first ever points. And up until his last game, far from the, you know, the perfect man. And obviously sometimes he was a bit of a flawed teammate, but, you know, he was a brilliant player. No question about it. And what was really odd was, you know, about a month before he died, he had, you know, he was in New York City and he brought, he had his daughter with him, uh, Gianna, and they had gone to a Nets game. I think they were in New York doing some shopping and then they sat courtside for a game because she liked Trey Young a lot. And he's playing for obviously the Atlanta Hawks. You could tell that he was going to become a very strong advocate for the women's game, whether it was women's college basketball and the WNBA and it, like that to me, you know, there was, there was a million sad things about it, obviously. You know, those, all those poor people, those, the two other young girls that were on the flight, I mean, on the helicopter. But thinking about what, you know, what that would have meant for, I think, the women's game, I, I really thought that was a major loss as well. Mm. Hard. Yeah, you know, Mike, I know you, you had a relationship with David Stern and had him on probably his, the last interview he did. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I knew the guy going back before he even became commissioner and, you know, with Stern through the years, um, you know, he was, he could be very belligerent and argumentative. And, uh, I think he got even more that way as the years went on in the early days, you know, David was had this sense of I'm selling the league and I've got to be something of an ambassador for it. Uh, so he had very good relationships with a lot of the regular guys who covered the sport. Um, mine was always up and down with them because, you know, invariably I would write a book that would really piss him off, you know? And uh, so there were times when he wouldn't talk to me or whatever, but, you know, he always respected the, the, the times as an institution, you know, he felt it was important to his sport to have the times, you know, covering it and, and uh, getting his, his message across so inevitably he would start returning calls, but you know, the, the relationship with him was such that, you know, I pick up the, uh, the phone some mornings after writing columns and I would just, you know, I'd be getting in, in the bathroom, getting ready to jump in the shower and the phone would ring and I'd run out and risk my life slipping on the wet floor. And I'd pick up the phone and instead of hello, I would hear that was bullshit, you know? <laughs> Basically reacting to something I'd written. Not even yet, not even announcing who it was. No, no. It was sort of like Mike Lupica calling you, but, you know. <laughs> uh, I got those calls. Yeah. Uh, I, that's why I said that, Frank. I know you were on the receiving end of many of those. Well, you know, Harvey, really, Harvey, really quick, I just want to say it's, it's interesting, too, because the time that you talk about, like, that's when, like, newspapers certainly, I mean, they still matter, but it seemed like we mattered a lot more back then. But it was also, that was, to me, was the relationship between the press and the leagues that we covered, you love the game of basketball. You, you know, you, you follow the women's game, high school, college, and, but you were willing, you know, to hold people, you know, their feet to the fire. And I think that's kind of lost. I think there's a little too much fanboy media. I think yeah. like uh, with newspapers struggling the way that they are, I also, I just think the coverage has changed, not necessarily for the better, but sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. I, th I agree with you, Frank. I think a lot of that has to do with connectivity, you know, social media and, texting and all the ways that we did not have back in those days to connect to athletes. We had to, you know, set up interviews and, you know, get, get them in the locker room. I think now there's, there's a strong desire for a lot of the people who cover the league uh, on a regular basis to have that instant access to players. And um, so, you know, you're not going to get that or they're not going to return your text or whatever if they see you as, an enemy. Interestingly, yeah. David always used to say, you know, within the, sphere, within the sphere of our sport, and, you know, he meant obviously the league, the players, the coaches, the even the agents, and mm. certainly the media. There are no 
uh, enemies, only adversaries. And he meant that we would have our fights and, you know, we, he could scream at us and I could scream at him. But he saw us, again, not as, you know, part of the league, uh, per se, that we were doing his bidding, but that we were all interested in, in we all love the sport. And uh, I, I, you know, I think that's changed a lot, you know, these days. You know what, Harvey, they should have called you to give one of the eulogies at David Stern's funeral instead of Pat Riley. Things would have moved along a lot, a lot quicker. That would have been perfect, what you just said. It was interesting. I was sitting next oh, to I was oh, That was a tough one. The inside baseball of that is, got Pat Riley is such a great speaker and um, and he's, you know, he's given every great speech in the world to his players. And yet he got up there and he's like, I'm going to tell you about David Stern, but first I'm going to tell you about Pat Riley for 45 minutes. <laughs> it was painful. I don't know how she knew it, but I was sitting a couple of, a couple of seats spots from Jackie McMullen. Yeah. And they called up Pat. Jackie turned to the person who was sitting next to her. I, I think it might've been Bob Ryan and said, this is not gonna go well. Wow. I don't know how she knew, what she knew, but maybe she knew something, maybe she she has this notion that Pat's lost a little on the fastball, but that thing went on so long and detoured into so many like stories about St. Patrick's basketball or yeah. <laughs> St. Aloysius up in Albany. Or, yeah. I mean, it was, it was bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was quite a memorial service. I felt like I was at a major event, and it was in many ways. I mean, they're running out freaking Radio City Music Hall. Um, I mean, right. the, the, we talk about the cutting edge of the NBA. Like, I remember I was all bummed the week before the, the NBA uh, closed up shop because my son had made some junior Olympic backstroke final in the, you know, for a 10 year old. And I was all excited. I was going to go to the University of Maryland, watch him swim, and they canceled it. I was like, oh, this is this is tragic. This is a travesty. Well, two days later, the NBA shut the world down. I mean, I, I feel like the Rudy, Rudy Gobert thing really became like the impetus for like you know corporations shutting down, other leagues shutting down. It like we it became like the NBA became like this sort of weird touchstone for like what to do in society. Yeah, I really I, I felt badly for Rudy Gobert too because he was almost the face of COVID for the NBA. And we don't know if he was the first one to have it. Yeah. We don't know if maybe one of his teammates gave it to him. He almost became, he was almost COVID shamed and the way people treated him. And then every day we were getting an update on the relationship with Donovan Mitchell <laughs> and Rudy Gobert. I mean, I don't, I'm not even sure I care about my relationship with, with my wife that much. And they were talking <laughs> about Rudy Gobert and, and Donovan Mitchell. And so I, I kept feeling badly for him. And then, <laughs> Uh, within the last two weeks, he signed the richest contract ever by a center in the NBA. So actually, he felt good for the guy. You know, he went. He actually yeah. went through a lot, which I thought was a little unfair. Frank, wasn't he the guy who who touched the microphone? Yes. Well, yeah, yes. and he mocked well, it. He mocked joke, but you know, I mean, yeah, that was that was not bright. You know, but I think most people were kind of like a little bit in denial about yeah what was coming. I mean, yeah. March third. Or March March fourth, which was after, you know, the outbreak in New Rochelle, uh, in Westchester County, and you know, I mean, there were there were outbreaks around the country, Washington State, but certainly in New Rochelle, and which meant that it was you know in the New York City area. Beth and I got on a plane and flew down to St. Lucia through Miami, you know, to go on a like a five day vacation. So I think you know, looking back on that, you know we were a little bit in denial about what was coming and the extent of it. So, yeah, I kind of agree with you that the guy took a beating for mainly for that microphone thing, certainly not for, for getting COVID because who knew, right? I mean, who knew where we, where it got, yeah. uh, but for the microphone thing, but, it, but I think a lot of people, you know, were not yet ready, not because they didn't take, they didn't think it was a serious thing. I mean, you saw what was happening in Italy and Spain and certainly in China, but because you were a little in disbelief that would ha it would happen here. Mm. Uh, yeah, you know, if you if you remember, there was the, there was a soccer team Atalanta. They play in Syria A in Italy, and they had played a Champions League match up in the, the town is so small that they moved the match to Milan, and it was like this crazy exciting game that the team won. 
and I think it's Bergamo, Italy, and they had a huge outbreak there. And they That's said right. a lot of it had to do with the people being at those games. So when you think about all these NBA arenas and look at Madison Square Garden, so we don't know when any of these guys got it, but Christian Wood was playing for Detroit. Mm. They had been in New York uh, just around that time. The Utah Jazz had just been in New York around that time. The poor um, photographer from the New York Post, Anthony Causey, who ended up passing away, he was at the Syracuse game, Big East game, that got called at halftime when they shut everything down. So, you know, a lot of people that were coming in and out of New York, it is a very good chance that, you know, it might have been spread uh, through through New York City. Um, um, I was thinking about uh, Harvey's book, the... uh, which is like, have you read it yet, Frank? I got it. I got, I'm, I'm working on it. All right, good. Cause I, I haven't been sent it yet. I used to be somebody that was like first on the mailing list. Now it's sort of like, Oh, Mike may give us a good review on his Twitter account. It really doesn't matter if he does or not. Um, no, but uh, I was like, um, it's, it's uh, our last season, a writer fan and a friendship. And it's basically a woman that Harvey got to know really well behind the Knicks bench, Michelle Musler, um, who covers like the last year of her life. And it, it's got so much in it. Um, I, before we get to the book, Harvey, we've all covered the Knicks. I got to say, Frank was probably nine when they last won their last championship. I don't even know if he remembers it. I, I was nine. Harvey, you were about 42. I mean, you like, <laughs> no, like, like, is anything changed after like Dolan bought the team, like, I mean, has it just been one run on him getting in his own way and the franchise just having this toxic top-down management? Will that ever change? Well, you know, the, the toxic top-down management goes all the way back to even the days of Red Holzman and Eddie Donovan. Mm. You know, for whatever reason, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the corporate feel of the building, uh, regardless of who owned it which corporation, um, there was always sort of like, I think in the years, my first years around the garden, there was always some kind of absentee owner. You know, there was no, they, they never, they've never had a, uh, you know, a Mark Cuban or a Steve Ballmer type, right. you know, a front run. I mean, Dolan's- An ITT, no, Paramount. Yeah, and, and so the, the, like the hiring practices, they always wound up with like one guy pitted against the other. Whether it was, you know, going back to Holzman and Eddie Donovan when Sonny Werblin gave Red Holzman a 10-year deal as coach with the right to, if he wanted to retire as coach, bump himself up to general manager, which would have knocked Eddie Donovan out of the, out of the loop. And, of course, Red and Eddie didn't get along because Eddie Donovan um, greased the skids for Red to get him out to move Willis Reed in in the late 70s. So there was always this back room, all these machinations going on. You know, Al Bianchi, and again, I don't remember which corporation owned the team at the time. Al Bianchi was a, a, a New York guy and a lifer in the ABA and the NBA. And he got hired, finally, he got the job of his life to become the Knicks general manager. And the first thing they did after they hired him was say, hey, we're going to get on a plane tomorrow morning. We're flying up to Providence to hire Rick Pitino as coach. And Al was like, what the hell? I wanted to hire Larry Brown as some guy I've known for, you know, 30 years, you know, in this business. And he didn't have that call. So from the very beginning of that marriage, those guys are at each other's backs. I mean, it went on and on that way. I'll be, uh, Dave DeBusher and UV Brown, same deal. So, I mean, the Dalton thing is different to an extent because he is sort of a power guy, a power boy owner. Um, but... You know, he's a guy who's very awkward and, you know, it just doesn't, uh, I thought not to, not to do a shameless promotion for the book, but there is a chapter in the book called Dolan and the Death of Hope. And it comes sort of near the end of the book where Michelle is ruminating about, you know, the fact that she never got to see a championship team. And it's all about how Dolan stepped in and forced Donnie Walsh to acquire Carmelo and give up all the assets and everything. And she made in that chapter a great observation, I thought, which, you know, her, her job, her profession was human resources. And she ultimately owned her own uh, a consulting company. She trained corporate executives, right? So she was always fascinated 
in what made Dolan tick. And so she talked about the difference in the body language that Dolan showed at courtside where he slumped in his seat and looked like it was the last place in the world he wanted to be. And the body language he had on stage when he was playing with his, you know, JD and the straight shot band and how much more confident and- That's so true. Yeah, how much more mm. self-confident. And her, mm. her point was that the Knicks were something he was handed by his father. Was, he didn't do a damn thing to earn it, but the music was something he always loved. And he would, however good you thought they were or weren't, that was something that Jim Dolan has created for himself. And that mm. he just looked far more natural in that role than he ever has as the chairman of Madison Square Garden. Yeah, and, and, I, and, I think, and I think the guy in a lot of ways has gotten a bit of a pass. I know that sounds nuts. I mean, to Harvey's point, you know, there's always dysfunction in a lot of organizations. But if you go to the 90s, I mean, they went to a bunch of conference finals. They went to two NBA finals. Since 2000, they have won one playoff series. Like, that's like a different level. I mean, the Minnesota Timberwolves have been to the conference finals in the last 20 years. Same thing with the Sacramento Kings, you know, the Phoenix Suns. Look at all the losing teams. The Orlando Magic have been to the finals. The Atlanta Hawks have been to conference finals. The Knicks have won one playoff series yeah. since, you know, uh, since they made it to the conference finals in 2000. It's hard to believe. It's not just the losing. I mean, you, you know, you're, you've been the subject of stories, Frank, in which the, the organization has gone out of the way to censor you, have monitors around when you're interviewing people, tell players not to interview with you. I mean, just tough. And then the Charles Oakley incident um, in which, you know, Oakley's stubborn as hell. I could see him getting into it with somebody, but there's such a tone deafness. There was sort of a, let's take care of this guy instead of talking to him. And it, it, they just don't, there's, it's, it's more, it's less about the losing than they just don't well, get it. To well, this day, they think, just don't and, get it. And I think, you know, when you have the individual owner and I think Harvey's point before about David Stern, where David, all right, so you're going to be critical of David Stern, but he knows that in some way he needs you. He doesn't want to lose you. Where Jim Dolan, they just keep score. Well, you were negative. Well, you're done. You're out. So here's Charles Oakley. Forget about the fact that he did all this dirty work when he played. And to your point, being tone deaf, not to realize that to the fans, they identify with Charles Oakley because everybody likes to think of themselves as a lunch pail kind of person. And so, all right, so here's Oakley. Every time a reporter asks him a question about the Knicks, he gives a brutally honest answer how bad they are. And to Jim Dolan, you're, you become an enemy of the state, so to speak. Mm. And it just doesn't – you can't run a basketball team like that. And these wars with the media – all right, let, let's say he's winning the war. What is ultimately the goal of your team? And I guess he's making money, which is all he cares about. But, again, the great thing about sports is they keep score. And after all the games, they put – uh, they put it in either the win column or the loss column. So that's what, to me, he should be one of the biggest things he should be judged on. And the record clearly speaks for itself. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, people always, I always get this question uh, when I'm, we're talking about the Knicks and, and my editor, at the, my old editor at the Times, Jay Schreiber, used to always Jay! ask me and say, We all know Jay. Well, if Dolan's such a bad owner, why is it that the Rangers, while they haven't won a cup, you know, since 94, I believe. Um, they've been competitive. They've gotten to, you know, a couple of Stanley Cup finals. Um, you know, they've had some really good years. Why, why is, and, and I always say that, first of all, it's apples and oranges, that hockey players, it's like a fraternity. You know, they're not like real look at me kind of guys. Uh, they come up through a whole different kind of system. NBA players are like, individual little cottage industries. And they all want to, they all have leverage. They all want to be branded stars and they are. And so you have a situation like now, they want to be, you know, social justice uh, activists, you know? And so you, it always comes back to Dolan's media policy. And people say, well, you know, people, some people who work around media in New York will say, well, you know, he doesn't interfere anymore with the trades or the drafts and all that stuff. It's just his media policy. And it's like, well, media policy is a very big deal because imagine like, could you imagine Greg Popovich or Stan Van Gundy 
or Steve Kerr, and those are just coaches. We want, you know, when you start talking about players, LeBron, Steph Curry, yeah. the things that these guys have been saying, whether it's about the president or about the country and the culture wars and all these things, right? Can you imagine any of those people working for Jim Dolan and being allowed to say the things that NBA players and coaches routinely say now? I yeah. Mean, the Knicks couldn't even release a statement when all yeah. the other teams are releasing statements in the wake of George Floyd. The Knicks were last, and even when they finally did release something, it was really generic and basically said nothing. So I think that that whole media policy, while, while players might not care if the Knicks exclude Stefan Bondi from a telephone news conference, they certainly care about the restrictions that he would place on employees in terms of expressing themselves on any number of things. Mm. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great point. And one thing to, uh, you know, Harvey had said before about Jim Dolan's body language, Mark Berman had something that he buried in a column that he wrote that, you know, Dolan was at the game last night, wasn't in his baseline seat and the front office a couple of years ago, he referred to it as garden brass. I don't exactly know what that means, but <laughs> they felt that Jim Dolan's body language is not good for the players and it actually distracts them. And there was like consideration, like maybe we should move his seat. And I thought about this. First of all, who's going to get the short straw and be the one that's going to tell Jim Dolan that he should move his seat? There's no chance that anybody's ever going to say that in a meeting with Jim Dolan. And then the other, the other thing would be, wow. can you? Uh, there's no chance that 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 would ever happen. It's also a pretty lame excuse why yeah. the team doesn't play well. But his, you know, everything that they've done, it's about it. It's never about winning basketball games. And that shows again in the record. Mm. There was a story, there's a story at, at the very end of my book um, that, you know, it, it defies, almost defies comprehension um, when it comes to Dolan. And this goes back two years ago at a fun the funeral for Cal Ramsey up in Harlem. And Al Ramsey, one of the most. If you guys ever uh, get around to reading the book, you will see this little anecdote. Yeah. Anyway, I went to it because I knew Cal very well. He was a wonderful guy. And at some point, a uh, woman who's sort of presiding over this service stands up and says, uh, Will the three speakers uh, who are here to speak about Cal please come up and prepare to you know, take the mic? And she called the three names. The first one was Cal's cousin or something relative. The second one was Charlie Rangel, you know, the congressman mm -hmm. from Harlem, former congressman. And the third one, she said, James Dolan. And the entire church kind of like heads were turning like on swivels, like Dolan's here, Dolan's here, oh my God. And the two people, Rangel and the other relative, got out of their seats and walked up and there was no third person. And then she said again, will the three people come up, James Dolan. And all of a sudden there was this awkward, awkward feeling like maybe he's not here. And she said it again a third time, no Dolan. He wasn't there. He didn't show? He didn't show. And now maybe, oh. he, had a, maybe he had a perfectly good excuse for not showing, but- He's a speaker. Apparently nobody, not him or anybody for him, called ahead to say he won't be coming. Uh, and so I was sitting next to a, uh, an NBA employee who shall remain unnamed, and he just shook his head and said, so typical. Wow. It's just wow. that inability to get the PR right. Wow. Yeah, you're right. All right, All right Frank, Frank you, are you where you're supposed to be? Yes. All right, let's wrap this up for you. All right, I want I want really quickly. Uh, you're going to see the Nets tonight. Uh, look, everybody says KD and Kyrie are going to be a powder keg. Yeah, uh, they look great so far. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, it, I, I thought the same thing a few years ago about um, Kawhi Leonard. Like, you don't see the guy for basically a year. Not that you forgot how good of a player he is. Yeah. But when you see him, you're thinking, man. It's the same thing with Kevin Durant. You know, we hadn't played in 560 days when he took the court on opening night on that Tuesday, December 22nd against Boston. And he looked, I'm sorry, that was against uh, the Golden State Warriors. And he looked great. And he looked great on Christmas Day. 
the guy is just an outstanding player and he just makes mm. everyone else around him better. If Kyrie could just stay on track, cause he's a terrific player as well. Cause you know, at some point, come on, every great team has some kind of adversity that they face. I mean, you know, you and Shaq were uh, pals. I mean, look at all the adversity that the Lakers had over the years mm. and they were still able to win. But I do think that Kevin Durant looks at it like, you know, when I was healthy, I was the two time finals MVP and we would have won a third straight championship if I don't get hurt. I think he wants to kind of reclaim his spot in the NBA, especially now that LeBron has won. And remember this, when mm. he was in Golden State, he played in 10 finals games, 10. That's right. They were nine in one in those games. I mean, think about that. If we keep talking about MVP of the finals, and it's it's just remarkable what he was able to do. Yeah, he's just you know incredible player. All right, all right. Word association quickly um, with you, Harvey and Frank. Um, I'm first, Frank Patrick Ewing. Um, great player. Unfortunately, just like uh, Malone, Stockton, Barkley, couldn't couldn't win that championship. Hmm. Harvey, Larry Bird. Vision. The guy had incredible vision. And I don't think, I think sometimes people look at players like that and think they, they work hard to create that. You know, that to me is something that you're born with. Yeah. There's too, there's too many, there are too many guys who get criticized hmm. for not seeing the floor well or seeing the things develop and people will call them selfish and then they'll say about someone like Larry Bird well he was you know an inc incredibly generous I mean or you know like uh, a guy who made everybody better but I think those that vision thing is something that you're you're just essentially born with mm. uh, I, you know Frank Frank you watched a lot of youth soccer games just as I did uh, when our kids were coming up, and Liam, Liam and Ga Liam and Gabby, Charlie and Alex, shout out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but when you when you watch these kids go up and down the field, you see some kids play up and down, and some kids play, you know, they play horizontally, and yeah. they see things that the other kids don't. And so when I think of a guy like Larry Bird, and, and I would see like Patrick, on the other hand, was a guy who didn't see a lot no. of those things he had mm. tremendous ability and and he worked his butt off night mm. in night out um but just lacked that that little extra thing that that makes them yep. see the game in ways that only the true geniuses do well look at like look at look at Nikola Jokic who sees the floor oh. like that Patrick Patrick never could have been a point guard he had to play center or yeah. power forward in the NBA bird you know could obviously play any position on the court sorry Mike, go ahead no Frank James Harden score okay. on and off the court <laughs> uh, uh harvey peter vesey <laughs> um benefactor how how's that benefactor huh yes for who i for me despite the fact that we haven't said a word to each other in 30 years Peter Vesey was largely responsible for me getting the Knicks beat at the New York Post in 1978. Yeah, is, a great story like that about him. Like, like for, you know, we all know he's insufferable, he's angry, he gets in his own way, and yet he's freaking legend. And you like, well, he was, you, you almost he was want kind. him. You, I, I always like, he's one of the one guys I wanted to be liked by in a weird way. Peter well, he, he 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 was very kind to me. I'll, I'll let Harvey uh, finish his story, but. He was he was always nice to me. And to be honest with you, I kind of think, listen, he could be he could he be a little over the top. Yes, I almost think in some ways the NBA coverage misses him a little bit. It does. Right? Yeah, it's not just it's the not real, just a guy anymore. like that doesn't put up with any bullshit. Yeah, I know. Peter was Sorry, first, Peter, no. I believe, unless I'm mistaken, uh, uh, unaware of somebody, Peter was the first of. The, of the guys, you know, in this country who were, whose beats, who, who basically was a specialist as a columnist, right? So like, people would yeah. say, oh, what about Peter Gammons? He wrote that incredible baseball notes column on Boston. He was the cell, he was the Red Sox beat reporter and he wrote the giant column on Sunday as Bob Ryan did, you know, on, on the NBA. But Peter's full-time job when he got to the post 
I want to say 1977, was three columns a week on the NBA, and that's it. So I believe he's the first of the specialists. And now, of course, those are the premier jobs yeah. you know, at the various you know top sports venues in the country. But going back to you know uh, the Post, uh, I was a dayside clerk, and the the Post had a guy covering the the Knicks beat that year named Doug Smith, who had come over from Newsday, which was you know a sleepy feature-oriented section out in Long Island. And they brought him over to cover the Knicks and the, Greg Gallo at the Post, the sports editor, just drove him, you know, drove him <laughs> insane. And he walked in one day in March and said, I quit. And so they called Peter up and they had him come into the office and, and they said, well, hey, we need you to get to Cleveland tonight to cover the Knicks game. And Peter looked up and said, you know, it was the old, I don't do windows line. Uh, I'm the columnist. And he pointed to me and said, send that guy because I would take Peter's copy over the phone at like four o'clock in the morning. Wow. We were an afternoon paper. And if you yeah. gave Peter eight hours to write his column, he was going to take it, right? Oh, that's, that's little, right. I would stay late and take yep. his copy, especially I remember during the Philadelphia-Portland finals in 1977. Wow. Um, and so we used to talk the game. And so he said, send that kid. And Jerry Lisker, the sports senator, came over to me and said, how quickly can you get to... to Cleveland, which was really Richfield, Ohio, the old. And basically, basically Peter Vesey hooked you up. I said, if I if I have to walk there, I'll, I'll get there. <laughs> That's right? awesome. And All right, Frank, Frank, Frank's got to get to work. Last uh, last one for him before I let him go. Like you guys are both fathers. You've had your kids have gone to college. You've, I've, I've gotten to know them over the years. Like exit any advice for a father trying to make you know i don't want to piss my kid off too much i want him to love sports but i also want him to do as well as he can any advice frank for for an aspiring father i would say let them do as many things as they want that they enjoy every sport or other activities that they do and make it to as many events as you can i used to do it all the time i'd come i would pay my own way sometimes during the playoffs just to come home for like a championship little league baseball game. Cause you're never going to get, there'll always be another, you know, NBA finals or NBA game. Your kids are only going to be young once. So try to make all that stuff. Cause it's, it, it'll be worth it. The best sporting, I say it all the time, the best sporting events I've ever attended all included my kids. Oh, that's awesome. Hey man, thanks for being a part of number 100 brother. All right. Thanks. Congratulations, Mike Harvey. Congratulations on the book. Now that Frank's gone, we can talk about him. No, uh, but, um, uh, anything that really stands out in your mind? Cause I'm, uh, you know, I feel like sometimes I'm doing well and other times I, I, I push it too hard. I think, uh, you know, and I, I'll say this about Frank um, in, in a good way. I mean, I, I, I attended many, many uh, games that Frank's kids were playing in because um, his son went to Seton Hall prep and they played against Montclair high school. And I think, yeah. I think Liam is maybe uh it's pretty much about the same age as Charlie um, and maybe a year younger. Uh, and Gabby um, was from freshman year on the star goalie on the Montclair High School soccer team. You know, and being a Montclair townie, I, I went to a lot of the games. They were always playing for, you know, a county or state championship. So I'll say this about Frank as a parent of two kids who were very good soccer players. Um, he never, you never got the feeling that he was one of these, either a look at me kind of dad who was living vicariously through his kids or um, a guy who was making a spectacle of himself. You, Frank would you know, be off on the top of the bleachers with a couple of other guys and they'd be kidding around and they'd be watching the game and making their little comments, but you wouldn't know that Frank was there. And I think like that would be my advice to any, hmm parent of young kids like Frank I agree those were great years both my kids Harley uh, yeah. played soccer uh, and and until senior until senior year at high school and Alec and, and also played basketball he was a small kid but he was a tenacious little guard and so he managed to play in a program you know a big high school 20 2200 kids uh, for all four years. And Alex was a good soccer player and he played a little tennis. Um, but, and I, and I loved going to the games. I mean, I, yeah, if you asked me, would I prefer to be at the garden watching, you know, the Knicks 
uh, against Reggie Miller or my kids playing. It was always, you know, I much prefer that. And like Frank, I did some ridiculous things, you know, staying up all night, not going to sleep, you know, after writing a column at some live event and then getting up at four and then not even getting up, but just heading out to the airport at 4 a.m. to catch a six o'clock flight and make it back by for a 10 o'clock soccer game, things like that. Um, but I never wanted to be, you know, I could see all these parents who were stalking up and down the sidelines and yelling and pissed yeah. off with coaches, you know, everything was, I'm not going to say I didn't have my moments where I felt like my kids were, you know, not getting a fair deal or something like that. But I always wanted to be mindful of the fact that, um, that I wanted them to know I was there for them. I didn't want them to ever think that I was making myself the issue. It's about them. It's their moment. I never wanted to embarrass them. I just wanted to be able to share it with them in some way. And that was to basically be there. And I used to, there was sometimes I would just stand far away from all the other parents and just watch from a distance because I just felt more comfortable that way. So the one thing I wanted to ask, um, uh, was um, I was thinking of any David Stern stories that really stand out to you that you had that um, either typified him or uh, really made your relationship stand out in a way? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, I've known him for so many years. Um, he was the very, um, he knew how to play people, you know, yeah. and he is very, he was so, he's so smart. Um, the one thing that when I was working on a book back in the nineties with Armin Katayan, mm -hmm, I remember I worked for, uh, ABC news. We did a book called money players and, um, we, we devoted a whole chapter to, uh, to Stern's history. Uh, and we, we found these women in, uh, North Jersey, uh, and one of the ones, one of the one of them was named Lee Porter. I think she's still alive, and I think she's still doing what she did way back when, when David knew her. Now remember, David grew up in uh, Teaneck, um, and he lived there as you know as a young lawyer. With I think when his sons were very young before he moved up to Westchester County, and so when he was, I believe, um, I think he was still. Uh, I think he had moved to the NBA as an in-house counsel. And um, he did pro bono work with this group. Oh, this is a good called, story. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a group that was investigating um, uh, real estate brokers in Bergen County that were doing what's known as racial steering, mm. where if a white couple came to them and said, hey, we're looking for a four bedroom house. They would send them the towns that were mostly white. Um, and if it was a black couple, they would send them to a place like Teaneck, which was more racially diverse or Hackensack. And, um, you know, this was something that, you know, creates obviously segregation, segregated schools. And, um, and David, uh, they, they essentially created, um, this group that um, that sent out like uh, like couples that were uh, setups, and to get to get evidence, they would say send out a black couple, and they would immediately send them to Teaneck, and you know so they had people who were willing to you know go on the record and, and testify. And he was part, that group was part of a landmark legislation, landmark lawsuit, which helped lead to legislation in, in Congress. Um, you know, the fair, I think it was the Fair Housing Act of 1976, I wanna say. Uh, it might be off by a year, a year or two. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, David, you know, in some respects, um, David, when he joined the NBA, which was a league, you know, when he even, when he, when he became like deputy commissioner, first outside counsel and deputy commissioner to Larry O'Brien, the NBA had a lot of the same issues that, you know, that were going on in, in Bergen County. Um, and so he was prepared. He understood a lot of the, uh, a lot of the obstacles that a league that was growing predominantly black like the NBA 
in the mid to late 70s, a lot of the obstacles and, and, and issues that it faced. Um, so he was, he was prepared for that, for that work. And, you know, I always felt like he had to walk a very fine line. On the one hand, David's, his, his job was to make money for the owners and secondarily for the players. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, he had this, this sense of social justice and he wanted to believe to be, you know, out front and make statements. Um, but that was, a, that was a fine line to walk. And he took a lot of grief from him. Now remember as he got older and a lot of the critics uh, were not necessarily people who knew him in the seventies and knew his, his complete record. They were judging him based on, you know, like the dress code or right. things like that. And or, felt or that the fact that he could savage people behind the scenes. Uh, you yeah. know, I always thought, I always thought, you know, Adrian Wojnarowski, we both know, Woj was always, uh, you know, he was, he was skillful in really carving the guy a hole in his head, but I never thought that his context really was, was fair because it didn't, it didn't, it didn't take into account a lot of who David Stern was, the person. There was, um, I think, you know, again, when, when he died and yes, as you mentioned earlier, you know, we knew he was not young. He was seven, he wasn't terribly old. He was 77, I believe. And it came out of nowhere and he'd been around, he'd been doing, you know, various events and, you know, uh, panel discussions. Um, but, you know, I think, again, there was this clash of, of critics. I mean, the older people, uh, like myself, who had known him forever, um, were less likely to be harsh in any way. I think I, I, I remember writing, I did do a piece for the Times, um, but I kept, you know, saying to editors and stuff who are a lot younger than I am, that let's, let's, let's look at the men in totality, you know, um, this is not the same kind of, this is not the same league that he inherited in 1984, or even the one in the 70s where he was doing, you know, legal work for it. It's a very different league. And the challenges that he faced, you have to understand how difficult they were. You know, as, as I remember I made a point in that piece that the very situation that guys like LeBron found themselves in at the start of last season with the whole China mess after the Daryl Morey tweet where they were criticized mm. for not wanting to, to speak out because they had money, a lot of money at stake in China being a big NBA market. Though that was the line that David Stern walked for all 30 years that he was commissioner. You know, how do you balance social justice with you know, the need to make money. And I think the players, at least I hope the players, got a better understanding of how difficult that was for David through all those years, because suddenly they were in that. Thank you, that was great. I really appreciate it. I, um, I and I would be remiss uh, if uh, the great thing about this uh, podcast, the last hundred shows is um, I could, piss my producer off as much as I want and go as long as I want if I just want to keep talking about something. And I think it would be remiss if I didn't speak a little bit more about the book because, you know, I, I got to know her, but very peripherally. And I even think it was through you uh, over the years. But, the, you know, I, in, in what I gather and from what I gather you working on it, there, there's just some, there was something about Michelle Musler. And, and a lot of people in our outside you know our world they don't, they don't realize how many people we interact with that send us emails or talk to us behind a bench or and they just become fixtures in our lives in different ways this was even deeper than that it's, it's a memoir about life i think as much as it is about sports and you know i thought you, you putting it into the word you know michelle loves sports because she always thought a single game segmented into stages was a microcosm of life with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you saw all of that. I mean, here's a single mother of five. You meet in the early 80s when you start covering the Knicks. She's behind the bench. She, she wills herself into her own corporation. And she has this 
pair of Nick's tickets that, you know, she is, she's privy to all these conversations that, you know, us reporters would just salivate over and she tipped you off on some of those. But more than that, she helped out as like, I mean, she was like almost a mother figure for you at some point. And, um, and I don't know, and, and I can't imagine it must have been painful her the last year she died in 2018 um pardon my ignorance did she did she have cancer or was it did what, what did she die of well for about a year and a half before her death um it seemed like her health was deteriorating um she she had a series of what they call little mini strokes um and they were doing a lot of tests on her and stuff uh, at first we thought she might be having some early signs of dementia, but she was still living her life. I mean, she wasn't going to the games anymore because she couldn't drive at night. The, the games that she would go to, I would actually, um, she still, she had, she had signed over her tickets that she had had for 45 years to a guy who had actually been uh, underwriting her for a couple of years when the tickets got so expensive, the hedge fund guy mm. who just wanted some access to them. And, um, a couple of games that he would give her to go to go, I would pick her up and bring her to the garden. And, you know, the Knicks would get very nervous when they would see me sitting right behind the bench because, you know, <laughs> as you know, the press had been banished way upstairs and they would always assign a security guard to stand right in front of me. So I couldn't look into the huddle. Come on. Revenge. I had Michelle, one of Michelle's seats and I was looking right in there. Not that I really cared that much. I wasn't writing as regularly as I once had. But um, Michelle was just an extraordinary woman. She died ultimately of uh, lung cancer mm. that was un unfortunately um, diagnosed a little too late uh, to treat. How old was um, she when she died? She was 81, about to turn 82. Um, you, wow, you, so you met her like, shoot, in her, uh, in, in her late 30s. She was, I think, in her early 40s when I met her. and. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you know, she was, for me, I mean, a lot of people will say to me before they read the book, it sounds like a Tuesdays with Maury type book. And I say, yes, on a, to a certain extent, but, you know, with all due credit to Mitch Album for writing a book that, you know, sold a gazillion copies and launched him on a fantastic run of, of fiction and nonfiction. Um, I think this relationship and the way it's portrayed in the book is far more significant and meaningful. Uh, uh, if I, you know, have to say so myself than the relationship that he had, which was in college and then picked up for a short time while Maury Schwartz was, you know, was dying. Michelle was so much a part of my life um, in so many different ways uh that it's 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 even hard to explain as i sit here uh this book is um you know it's in some ways it's a it's a it's a memoir for me it's other ways it's a, it's michelle's story i think she's you know by far and away the biggest star of the book um but it's about friendship mentorship uh and 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 something that i think we all face you know, as we age, um, where we start to either let go or have pride from our fingers, the things that we have done for so many years and the ways by which we identify ourselves. Mm. And, you know, the last year of her life, she was no longer able to go to the garden where she had reconstructed her social life after a terrible marriage and divorce. Um, and she never got remarried. She never got remarried, but she, she, she somehow assimilated that world at the garden. I mean, she knew everybody. At she the was garden. married to the Knicks. In some ways, she My was. My God, that's even a more abusive relationship <laughs> than her than her. Not so much in the '90s, though, as uh, you were saying true. earlier. That's true. That's true. She had um, hope. She and even in the '80s, she loved. You know, she had the Bernard, Bernard King. King. You know, the Patino years before that went south. Um, she just. She just knew everybody. I mean, in this book, you know, with mm. cameo roles, so more or less, anyone, you know, Walt Frazier to Willis Reed to Charles Oakley to, you know, mm. to uh, 
Jeff Van Gundy to Mike Breen, they all show up because they all knew her. Mm. Um, she was sort of like the flip side of Spike. Spike is literally the face of the Knicks fans out front, hamming mm. it up, you know, wearing his little film caps, being on stage himself. Michelle was the non-celebrity celebrity fan sitting, you know, symbolically right behind her guys. Yeah, a couple, seat, couple seats over from Woody and at one point soon Yi, till that went south. Um, you know, it's, uh, anyway, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm really proud of the well, book. It's a different kind of sports book. If it even did you see her at the end? Did you like when she, right before she passed? I was with her pretty much right to the end. Her family oh. treated me like part of the family. I knew all of her five kids. Yeah. She knew, she knew my wife, Beth. She knew my in-laws because one of the things that brought us together that drew us in those early years after I met her was that I happened to meet a woman who was from Greenwich, Connecticut and Michelle lived in Stanford and there were two exits apart on the, on the Merritt Parkway. So whenever we would go up there for a weekend at some point, hey, I'm with the in-laws, right? I'm like, uh, Beth, I'm gonna go see Michelle, you know, for lunch. And Beth would have to explain to her parents where the hell Harvey went. Um, so <laughs> some older, some older woman that uh, he's uh, he's uh, he's attracted to as a person. I think my uh, father-in-law was like, I don't know what's going on here, but I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, you so you saw her. Did you get a chance to tell her how much uh, she meant to your life before? It's she... all there in the book. At the end, it's it's mm. it's. Uh, I think it's very sad that mm. part of the ending, but um, you know, I think there's sort of an upbeat nature to it as well. Um, and because her, the, the good news was that she didn't linger long once she found out she was terminal, which was yeah. was good. But what was also good was that um, she was around just long enough for everybody, including her five kids who lived all over the country to get to Connecticut and, and including myself and people like, you know, who were close to her at the garden, like Lori Hamamoto was very close to her. Mm. Jay Greenberg, who worked for the New York Post columnist, he was close to Michelle. All of us had the opportunity to get up there to say the things that we, you know, we felt we had to mm. say. That's great. That's great. Well, it's a, a tribute to a great woman. I can't, I can't wait to read it because it's my kind of book and God bless it. It's probably the best thing the Knicks did for you the last uh, 40 years. Absolutely. Bring her into your life. Absolutely. Yeah. But the last sentence of the book more or less says exactly that. God, man. I could read your mind. I could read you like a cheap novel. Um, thank you, my friend. Hey, thank you, my friend. This is uh, this the one hundred is one uh, hundred's in the books, and um, I, I'm so proud and honored that I um, had you on, and, and Frank. I mean, Frank. Frank is kind of an ancillary thing, but you especially, Mike. We go back a long ways and to some very good days, particularly in Sydney. When I had to uh, talk you out of that note, that letter to uh, Joe Lullyville. Oh God, yes. <laughs> oh God, yes. I. Oh yeah, I was. Uh, oh, I was on. I, I was on the cusp of leaving sports, and I was on the cusp of. Leave, oh God. Oh yeah. And yeah, I'm glad you talked me out of that. In the basketball that was, arena, as I recall. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Uh, it was. It was the Shack book uh, that got me in trouble, and um, luckily I got out of that with money. What, 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 what an adventure. All right. Um, thank you, man. That was dope. Our biggest hope for 2021 is that the COVID vaccine is given to every person on the planet so we can snuff this pandemic out as soon as possible. But until that day arrives, please keep your guard up. Wear the mask in public to protect yourselves and others. Wash your hands. Keep your distance. And just be considerate of everyone. And keep all the medical professionals in your prayers. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thanks to my guests on this 100th episode of The Mike Wise Show. Javier Aritin and Frank Isola. Two likable lads from the shores. Of... All right. Two incredible journalists and dear friends. Bruce Bernstein has produced all 100 shows and appeared on 12 of them. Thanks, Bruce. I really appreciate that. I don't take it for granted. 
Tom Phillip, I do take you for granted. You edit this show every week. And he's very, the guy's a very creative editor, makes all of us better. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops media shows, Full Court with Jenny Fisher and Kara Kay. They have the best in college hoop each Tuesday. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin is here every Wednesday. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with my friend Monica McNutt and King McClure has a new pod every Thursday. And B.J. Armstrong and Eric Newman, yes, they're about on 100 now. They have the Pure Hoops podcast each Friday. Of course, the Mike Wise Show has a new episode every Monday. I'm sure you've listened to all 100. We also have a bunch of great segments you can check out on the Pure Hoops Media YouTube channel. So until next time, peace. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.